You're listening to DraftKings Network. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I liked how last week people were trying to figure out when exactly Adam Silver would drop this suspension. Of course, of course, tried to sneak it in on Friday for the weekend. Get it in there so they couldn't get the first takes and the get-ups to comment on this. But Silver's statement said, Ja Morant's decision to once again wield the firearm on social media is alarming and disconcerting given his similar conduct in March for which he was already suspended eight games. The potential for other young people to emulate Ja's conduct is particularly concerning. Under these circumstances, we believe a suspension of 25 games is appropriate and makes clear that engaging in reckless and irresponsible behavior with guns will not be tolerated. For Ja, basketball needs to take a backseat at this time. Prior to his return to play, he will be required to formulate and fulfill a program within the league that directly addresses the circumstances that led him to repeat this destructive behavior. Nice. Message received, guys. Well. Problem solved. Tentatively. Tentatively. See where we go with this, you know? Do you guys think that the video that came out later of John Morant using a fake gun as a as a lighter, do you think that this stuff helps his case or hurts it? I think it hurts it. I just like, yo. Drop it. Ask <laughs> advice from someone who's not your homeboy. That's all I'm asking. Because clearly this is homeboy advice. Hey, man, just get one of them lighters. And then they'll think it was just a lighter all along. Shut up. Shut up. I don't want anything gun related. I don't want the Nintendo duck hunt gun no i don't want you going to florida because it looks like a gun like none of that shit just stay away from guns all types of guns water guns super soakers don't matter laser tag out of the question all of it out out at least put some space between you and this shit before you do some dumb shit again the 25 games to me is really interesting because everyone's like 25 games that's nothing i was like well let's see He's not eligible for any NBA awards. Yeah, let's do the math, right? Because there's 82 games in a season. He plays every single game. That's 57. That's 57 games. You're automatically not eligible for any of the postseason awards, right? Now, add on to it, the 25 games would be the first 25 games of the season. That means highly unlikely that you'll be an all-star even. Even if the fans are like, F- you, man, we really love guns and we think just cool. We're voting him. You still need buy-in from the other two voting contingents, which is the media that's 25%, and the players are 25%. And as much as the players might feel for their brother job, they won't feel for him more than like voting for, well, I don't know, Devin Booker, Steph Curry, you know, even De'Aaron Fox. I mean, there are a lot of guards. Kyrie, Kyrie. Don't forget about Kyrie. Kyrie's in the West. I forgot about that. Luca's in the West. Basically, it's impossible. The coaches won't pick him, yeah. not only because of 25 games, but because, again, he's exhibited the behavior of a dumbass. So even though he's going to get to play this season, in many ways, the NBA history books are not going to remember this season from Ja unless they do something amazing like win it all, in which case he can win finals MVP or maybe 
a conference finals MVP or something like that. So this punishment, I think, is a lot harsher than a lot of people think. Go in the other direction, I mean, I don't think it's a suspension at all. Really? I don't think it actually suspends him for any of the games. Hmm. It's 25 games time. Yeah. Clearly, he's going to miss 25 games. Oh, 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 you're operating that the opening night in the NBA is in October? Is that what you're saying? NBA tip-off. Isn't that what it always is, other than COVID-shortened seasons? Amuse me for a second here. What was the 25th game of the season for the Memphis Grizzlies this year? Why don't you just tell me what day it was? It's December 7th. Oh. Interesting. Sorry, I was raised Catholic. I shouldn't know this off the top of my head. What is Christmas again? What day is Christmas? December 25th. December 25th. Huh. Now, that's interesting. They didn't do 40 games half the season. They landed on 25, which would, if the schedule is more or less the same next season, this upcoming season, that allows John Morant to play on Christmas Day. Now, that's interesting because... A lot of casual fans thought the NBA season actually starts on Christmas Day because that's when most fans care about it. This is the way for the NBA to say, you know what, John Morant, we are going to suspend you for 25 games. But in reality, we want you still back for the Christmas Day game. We all hope that John Morant has learned his lesson from this situation, but the NBA will never be able to take away his Second Amendment rights. As long as he's on the Grizzlies, he'll still have the rights to bear arms. <laughs> My assignment. Uncover why the association inspires more conspiracy theories in volume and salience than any other U.S. sport. You've heard of the Illuminati. The truth is out there, but so are lies. Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. The NBA has always been controlled by about eight people. Denial is the most predictable of all human responses. If you're only using 10% of your brain, you don't even know that you're using 10% of your brain. The NBA Illuminati. If coincidences are just coincidences, why do they feel so contrived? The Illuminati. But you start to follow the money, and you don't know where the f*** is going to take you. It is unspoken. They have influence among other players. The NBA Illuminati. I don't have time for your convenient ignorance. Maybe I'm a conspiracist now as well. That's but all it took. Oh, we got books, we got schools. You saw a video on YouTube. <laughs> Why am I, sir? You've never used them before. We are the basketball Illuminati. <laughs> This is Basketball Illuminati. I am Tom Haberstroh, and as always, I'm joined by the five-star Lumen Army Generals, Amin Al-Hassan, and producer Anthony Mays, the co-presidents of the Illumination. Later on in the show, we've got Brandon Payne of Accelerate Basketball here to talk about, wait a minute, not Steph Curry. We're talking about Scoot Henderson, not Steph, Scoot. Yeah, Scoot instead of shoot, or maybe he will be Shoot Henderson. We'll see. Talk to Brandon Payne. He'll tell us all about it. How that's going. Was that a scoop or a scoot? It's all. Scoot? On scoop? Yeah. We're going to talk Davion Mitchell. We're going to talk Stephen Curry. We're going to talk about Scoot Henderson and all the stuff that he did except for throwing up in a workout. You'll have to find out what we're talking about there. He did not do that. That's how tough he is. Anything else happening this week? Oh, yeah. Talk about that sale with the Hornets. You know what? Maybe we'll wait on that one. Mm, mm. But first... You are listening to The Agenda, 
with Tom Haberstro and Amin El Hassan. Amin, last time we were recording this podcast, we raised the possibility of Damian Lillard going to the Miami Heat. And I threw a little cold water on it last week. Is that water heating up now? You know, when you put the water in a pot, put the pot on the stove, turn the stove on, mm-hmm. you're looking at the water and the water looks pretty still, looks the same. And then all of a sudden you see these little bubbles. Yeah, They're not coming to the surface, but it's almost like the water has razor burn all over its cheek on the bottom. That's the stage we're at right now. We were flat water and now we got some stuff going on. The Bradley Beal deal to Phoenix. Now Miami doesn't have to do the Zach Morris, who am I taking to the prom? I'm going to try to take both, running from one side to the other side, changing his shirt or whatever. That's the Lou Will. (laughs) No, Lou Will walks in with both of them. (laughs) Zach Morris, you're playing both sides. Now the Miami Heat, they've got no divided attention. They get to put a full-court press on the Portland Trailblazers in order to pry the prize, which is a player who has gone on record and saying, I would love to play with my good friend, Bam Adebayo. Now, here's the problem. I'm telling you right now, I've been one of the biggest Damian Lillard supporters there is since he came in the league. I love his game. I love his approach to the game. Okay, Stephen A. I love everything about him. I love how he represents his team. I love how he represents this sport. I respect everything about Damian Lillard. He's one of my favorite players. But you mean to tell me he comes back and says, I'm not going to play anywhere other than Portland? What are you talking about? What are you, crazy? You're making me look stupid now. Like, oh, no. I'm out on Damian Lillard. Whoa. I'm out on him. Why do I want something for somebody that they don't want for themselves? Why do I want prosperity for someone who doesn't want prosperity on himself? You had your out. Just shut up and let nature take its course. Nope, I got to remind everybody, hey guys, I want to retire in Portland and we're going to make this thing work. No, you're not. I want someone on TV directly to Damian Lillard say, no, you're not. You're not going to make this work. It's not going to work. There are two options ahead of you here. I mean, he can't be the bad guy in this situation. He wouldn't be the bad guy. He knows that the media will destroy him if he goes. No, it won't. And tries to. Forced his way out. No, I'm starting to destroy him now for staying. No. (laughs) Destroy him for staying. Yes, absolutely. This is a massive waste of everybody's time. We just watched Jokic win a championship by staying. And we're showering Jokic and Michael Malone as like, stay the course, get the right guys around you, and you can win a championship too. Isn't Jokic a good five years younger than Dame? Yes. He stayed the course longer and he hasn't gotten a championship out of it. I don't know if stay the course is necessarily the argument on here. Hang tough. And let's also point out that Jokic has never been this bad. Never been on a team this bad. That's not me comparing Jokic to Dame as a player. That's me comparing Jokic to Dame as what his team has gone through. And what his team has gone through is nowhere near as bad as what the Blazers have gone through. The Blazers have been horrendous. Horrendous. How many years? How many years have they been horrendous? Let me count the ways. This year, 33-49, last in the division. Last year, 27-55. Amazingly, second last in their division. Shout out to the Sacramento Kings. The year before that, you made the playoffs. Congratulations, you lost in the first round. The year before that, you made the playoffs through the play-in. Congratulations, you lost in the first round. The year before that, you made the conference finals. You got swept. And then before that, first round knockout, first round knockout. So 
Six of the last seven years, they haven't made it past the first round. And that's with different GMs, different coaches, different running mates, if you will. He's had it all. He's, they've done everything they can do there. Again, this is not a knock on Damian Lillard as a player. It's a knock on Damian Lillard as a realist. Buddy, wake up. This shit ain't going to work, man. Come down to South Beach, man. They do things right down there. They already got two stars. They need what you do. They need scoring. They need shooting. They need late game execution. And you get to play for a Hall of Fame coach, a top 15 all-time coach. You get to play with two all-star, all-NBA, all-defensive team guys. You get to live somewhere beautiful as opposed to looking outside your window and seeing gray and rain all day. You get to leave all that behind you to play for ownership that's committed to winning, not an owner who says, I didn't want this anyway. My brother died and gave it to me. What about this is appealing to him other than, oh, this is the team that drafted me. So what, man? This should have been a means inconvenient truth. <laughs> a lot of people go straight from denial to despair. Without pausing on the intermediate step of actually doing something about the problem. 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 truth. I think when we look at this, though, we were thinking too short term. We're always looking at what's in front of us. We can't see past our nose. Thinking during the NBA Finals, after Damon Lillard's season's been over for quite a while, I remember when he went on the podcast, talked about how, you know, of all the contenders that could acquire him, which one would he want to play for? And he named the Miami Heat. I was like, man, the Heat are going to somehow get Dame without giving up Bam. It's somehow is going to happen somehow, some way. And what transpired over the past week has only confirmed that that prophecy is going to come true because to get Bradley Beal, the Suns gave up Chris Paul's expiring contract, non-guaranteed contract. How old is Chris Paul again? 38 years old. They were about to waive him a week or two ago. Well, they did the thing that NBA teams like to do. I'm going to waive you. Yeah. I'm going to do it. I'm going to dangle this. The date is June 28th. If, I, if no one stops me before June 28th, he's gone. I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm picking up the phone. Oh, oh, oh. I, I'm dialing 212. I'm counting to three. One, two. Two and a half? Until someone says, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take his contract. 2.9? Because ultimately, that is the value of Chris Paul today. May not be his value in a couple of months, but his value today prior to getting waived, June 28th, prior to that guarantee date, is you acquire $30 million salary, and with the stroke of a pen, it becomes a $15 million salary on your books and an extra roster spot. Now there's some legally, there's CBA language. Apparently there's some cap minutia that as part of this trade, his guarantee moves from 15 to 25 or something like that. Not the full 30. Yes, that's right, Tom. Bobby Marks reported on Twitter that his salary will be 25.04 million. Mark Stein chimed in to say that he made almost 10 million in extra guaranteed salary via this trade. And then... Brian Windhorst said that he is likely to get his entire $30 million salary, according to sources. I did not quite understand when Bradley Beal got the no trade clause a year ago, how powerful that no trade clause was. Oh, come on now. You've been around the block a couple of times. It's amazing how much power that gave to the agent. Mark Bartlestein, longtime agent in the NBA. Mm-hmm negotiated with Ted Leonsis and the front office of the Washington Wizards to allow 
Bradley Beal to say, nope, veto, not going there. That's too many players gutting that team that I'm going to. I don't want that trade. He had the ability to say no to whatever the Wizards brought to the table. And in this case, that was everything. He was able to pick from a buffet of options and he had the Wizards buy the balls. Now, here's the interesting thing, right? This is why like, I feel no sympathy for NBA teams. The reason why Mark Bartlestein knew he had the ability to get the no trade was because the Wizards owner, Ted Leonsis, made it abundantly clear that a strip down and rebuild was out of the question. They were going to attempt to be competitive every year, no matter what, again, that pesky, pesky friend next door reality has to say about it. Maybe Ted Leonsis and Damian Lillard should get together and have an intervention together where they're introduced to reality. Because they were so committed to, no, 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 we're never going to strip down, we're, we're going to keep this thing going, they became unduly attached to the best thing they had going for them. Bradley Beal, averaging 30 points a game, all-star, all those things. Now, never mind that if we rank shooting guards in the league, he probably wouldn't make your top five. That's not a knock on Bradley Beal. It's just to say that there are better options out there and that while he is a good player, I don't think any of us look at him as a fundamentally franchise-level player. He's not Steph Curry. He's not Kevin Durant. He's not Nikola Jokic. He's a good player. He's an all-star. And because of the stupid collective bargain agreement that forces teams to limit how much they can pay actual franchise-level players— that money trickles down, and so you get good players, but not quite as great players, making up that money. And that brings them up to that max level. So to the untrained eye, Bradley Beal making the same amount of money as Damian Lillard or Nikola Jokic or whatever, and you say, makes sense. When in reality, we know that those players are not on equal planes. Now, because of this, Mark Bartlesey knows this, you guys are wed to the idea that you have to be good, and you are wed to the only way you can get good is through my guy. If my guy says, you know what? I'm not signing your extension. I'm out of here. You guys are left having to do the thing you swore you wouldn't do. So what do you do? You demand a no trade clause, which if the Wizards never wanted to trade Bradley Beal, wouldn't be a problem. The problem is Ted Leonsis makes a decision, get rid of Tommy Shepard. Tommy Shepard is out. Michael Winger is in. Michael Winger has not had to work for Ted Leonsis before. He comes in fresh. He says, I'm going to take this job, but if I take this job, we're tearing everything down. Which is a statement that Tommy Shepard could never make because he's been in the Wizards organization the whole time. <sighs> and he knows my owner's not going for that. Mm -hmm. It's a different sort of leverage. So once Michael Winger comes in, he says, we're tearing everything down. Ted Leonsis says, well, they tell me this is the guy I should be hiring. So I'm going to go along with it. But now that no trade clause, which was never supposed to be a thing, becomes a thing. So we have this trade agreed to. And according to ESPN, there's a quote in here in the story from Bradley Beal. Wait, wait, no, it's not Bradley Beal. It's uh, Ted Leonsis. No, wait, not Ted Leonsis. It's Mark Bartlestein. Yep. Pulling strings. The first quote we get in this story from Beal's agent, Mark Bartlestein of Priority Sports told ESPN, quote, this was an extremely complicated process with so many hurdles to get through. And Ted Leonsis and Michael Winger were unbelievable partners in making this happen. 
From the day that Ted drafted Brad, he has been by our side, along with former general managers Ernie Grunfeld and Tommy Shepard. They've always had Brad's back in every way. And now we have experienced the exact same thing with Ted and Michael Winger. We are extremely grateful. I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't be grateful for someone who paid you all that money <laughs> mm-hmm. and gave you a no-trade clause mm-hmm. and allowed you to get traded somewhere with great weather and great teammates, all while not having to give shit up basically in return other than a disgruntled 39-year-old who's got to get waved at some point anyway. 38. I'd be grateful too. It's not extremely complicated. There's nothing complicated about this situation. Bradley Beal wanted to go to the Suns and they made it happen. The complicated thing was, where do I want to (laughs) go? That was the complicated part for Brad. You know what was not complicated either? The Phoenix Suns front office. Yeah. Because who is the CEO for the Phoenix Suns? Yeah, this is the part where I got to push back on all the amateur third eye openers here. We did a whole thing about Mark Bartlestein's son becoming the CEO of the Suns, despite what many would call a relative dearth of experience all around in the industry and never having led an organization before. It came from Detroit, where he was an assistant general manager, which one would say that if he had the chops, the next step would have been general manager in this league, not CEO of a team. These are all things I pointed out months and months ago. And to see like Instagram and TikTok discover this, oh, oh, Bradley Beal's agent, his son, president of the Suns. Oh, thanks, guys. This is not third eye open territory. It's not. Oh, this is this is fun. Mm-mm. No, it's not. Even though it happened on Father's Day, I mean, it was Father's Day. I mean, I'm going to remind you, February 2014, Mark Stein reporting. Among the options that the blank blanks are weighing as they start to conceive a new front office team is making a bid to persuade veteran agent Mark Bartlestein to leave the representation game to join them, according to sources briefed on the matter. Sources told ESPN.com this week that the blank team have interest in trying to recruit Bartlestein into their management structure, as other teams have done in recent years most notably with the Phoenix Suns hiring of Lon Babby and the Golden State Warriors hiring of Bob Myers. Mm-hmm. Now, what team was trying to hire Mark Bartlestein away from his agency to run the front office of the franchise? These agents typically represent a player of note who already plays for the team. And so Mark Bartlestein represents a great many big-name players. But my guess here... There's just the outside-the-box Washington Wizards, who, by the way, also, we kind of swept this under the rug. Remember when they had that front office structure where Tommy Shepard's in charge, but here's John Thompson III, and here's Stashi Brown coming in from the NFL. So, yes, I'm guessing Mr. Outside-the-box Ted Leonsis tried to hire Mark Bartlestein. Am I accurate? Pry it open. I mean, the third eye is not quite open far enough. Really? Once it's open, you will see none other than Dan Gilbert trying to hire Mark Bartlestein to run their front office. But here comes Matt Ishbia. Oh, wow. What better way to bring in Mark Bartlestein? Well, not quite Mark. Why don't we just get one of his best clients, if not his best client, and we can get the heir apparent to the Bartlestein empire, his son, Josh Bartlestein. Take that, Dan Gilbert and the Cavs. And now they got both. They got Bradley Beal and Mark Bartlestein because Mark Bartlestein has the no trade clause still. Mm -hmm. So... They can still be playing chess while everyone else is playing checkers 
it was all preordained. All the Dan Gilbert versus Matt Ishbia war that's happening dates back decades. Nine years before he became owner, he had the Bartlestein name circled on his corkboard of things to screw over Dan Gilbert with. One day I'm going to be an NBA owner and I'm going to screw over Dan Gilbert. And when I do, I'm going to do it by hiring Mark Bartlestein's kid who is a teenager at this point, I believe, Mm -hmm. going into like 10th grade. Yeah. I mean, you work in the mortgage industry. You got to think about futures. There you go. You know, you're not actualizing everything in the moment. But there's another part of this story that I do think we need to continue to work that third eye for. And that is the New York Times article with Chris Paul about the book that he wrote. Not even about this trade. Just so happened to be getting interviewed when this trade breaks. Look at that. That's nice journalism right there. And he kept saying that Matt Ishbia and a certain someone that we've mentioned on this podcast are going a different direction with the Suns because he was blindsided by this news. He wasn't expecting it, even though we did the whole tantalizing about to wave you behavior. He said none other than Isaiah, Matt and Isaiah, which Isaiah is that? Is that Isaiah Thomas? who was sitting next to Matt Ishbia when Jokic made contact with him during the playoffs? Is it that Isaiah Thomas? Is it the Isaiah Thomas that Chris Haynes reported was being considered for a front office position of some kind, which Matt Ishbia vehemently denied? Yeah. That Isaiah Thomas? By the way, Chris Paul knows what he's doing here. He's been around the block a few times. He's the president of the Players Union. He knows how this NBA works. And when the New York Times says, hey, remember we scheduled that interview to promote your book 61, which is life lessons taught by your your late grandfather. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, let's, let's do that interview. Okay, cool. So how did you find out about the trade? Oh, yeah, you know, I was on the plane. <laughs> this is what Chris Paul said. He said, when it comes through and my son texts me, I realized that, you know, Matt and Isaiah, I guess, just wanted to go in a different direction. And that's when the record scratch happens. Wait, 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 wait. Isaiah... So Isaiah is technically not officially part of the franchise. It's interesting that Chris mentions Isaiah here to the New York Times of all publications. How does this play in New York with the league office and just the New York Knicks and the whole workplace lawsuit with Isaiah Thomas? It feels like this was a very calculated drop by Chris Paul that he knew, I'm guessing, was going to start another cycle of news stories about Isaiah's influence in the Phoenix Suns. So I'm like, who's running this thing? Because we just talked about Josh Bartlestein. We talked about James Jones. And now we're talking about Matt Ishbia and trying to get back at Dan Gilbert. And then here we have Isaiah Thomas, who is apparently running Chris Paul out of town. The other undersized point guard, Hall of Fame point guard. There's a very deliberate name drop by Chris, if you ask me. And you gave me one of my favorite anagrams that I've ever seen on this subject in particular, which is Matt Ishbia. That's an interesting name, right? Maybe if you move those letters around, you might get something like, I don't know, Isaiah T. What what are the leftover letters, though? Bam. Bam out of bio, maybe. Bam. Okay, well, they're not going to trade Bam. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Mm -hmm. M-B-B. A Matt Ishbia, Isaiah T with a business degree. With a business degree. Look at that. MBA Isaiah T. That's it. An anagram for Matt Ishbia. Keep in mind, you might be saying to yourself, wait, there's two T's. Where's the extra T? No, there isn't. No, there isn't. There's not. <laughs> not a Matt. <laughs> Matt Ishbia is just one T. So that anagram works. 
Isaiah T with an MBA, Matt Ishbia. The irony of ironies of all of this is that since Matt Ishbia took over the franchise, his first order of business was trading for Kevin Durant and trading Mikel Bridges, Cam Johnson, and about 18 draft picks. Then to get rid of Chris Paul and acquire another star player, Bradley Beal, it's rumored, and we haven't figured out the final tally yet, that at least four second round picks are going to the Washington Wizards in this trade because they have no more first rounds to give, but they do have swaps. So two first round swaps, an untold number of second round picks. And on top of that, they already sent the 2029 second round pick to the Oklahoma City Thunder last year to take on Dario Saric. Anyway, the point is they have gotten rid of all of their draft picks since Matt Ishbia took over. And James Jones told Kevin Arnovitz in a big story this time last year, Arnovitz wrote this amazing profile, a deep dive into the front office of the Phoenix Suns and their philosophy with the draft was, we don't care about the draft. Yeah. We don't value draft picks like other teams do, but we don't. We actually would rather get the Landry Shamits after their rookie scale deal or, you know, acquire talents four years down the line. We think it's a bunch of crap shoot picks in the draft. We don't care about the draft. And they've gotten rid of just about every pick since that story ran. But Amin, you know this better than anybody. What is the one superpower of Isaiah Thomas? That man knows how to pick players. He's excellent at the draft. <laughs> I done seen it firsthand. He's so good at the draft. He's incredible at it. Don't give him salary, but give him draft picks. That dude is going to hit with laser precision. And it doesn't matter where in the draft they are. He got multiple all-star David Lee at the 30th pick. He got Wilson Chandler at 23. Mm -hmm. Tracy McGrady, Hall of Famer. One of the greatest scorers of all time. Got him at the ninth pick. Marcus Camby at number two. Okay. Solid pick. The dude is one of the best defensive players of his era. Four-time all-defense, one-time depoy at number two. See, I don't like looking at the top. I, I like the ones that's further down because that, to me, is, is the measure. I'm just saying he hasn't missed. Ronaldo Balkman is one of the ones that people point to a lot. That was a miss. Ronaldo was, what, 21 in the draft? Like, come on. Marty Collins is another one. I mean, so he's got a couple of, because here's my thing. I've always said this. No one's perfect at the draft. These are scratches on the car. They're not a train wreck, you know? That's what I'm saying. Nobody's perfect at this, but he's pretty good is what we're saying. Damon Stoudemire is another one of his picks. Trevor Ariza at 43. Trevor Ariza. I remember him as a rookie when I worked for the Knicks. Well, that's great. So he'll be able to shadow GM for the Suns and make a bunch of great picks for them in the next Except five to seven years. And Except problem is they kind of don't have any picks. They don't have any picks. Oh. First or second. Well, then his record will remain perfect. Pristine. There you go. That's smart. How about that? When you got a great record like that, why mess with it? Quit while you're ahead. That's what I say. I did a study last year on the draft since 1989, looking at the draft value of every pick, hundreds and hundreds of picks, breaking it down. How many win shares did that pick produce in the NBA? And then I assigned the executive making those picks, whether it was traded from whom to whom. And then I said, okay, well, if we know the expectation at every draft pick, if every slot has an expected value based on the curve of value in the draft, that the number one pick is the most valuable and then it kind of decreases ever so slightly throughout the rest of the draft. We have an expected value of each draft slot and we know all the picks that an executive has made. Can't you figure out which executive has gotten the most bang for their buck in terms of the draft? And it turns out 
the most amazing drafter since 1989 is Greg Popovich. Well, <laughs> wait a second. Are you adding Wembenyama to that? <laughs> to get that one too? Look, I'm looking at Tom's little chart here, and I know what's happening. Because here's the interesting thing, Maze. Says how many picks each one of these front office leaders have made. Well, Greg Popovich has been in charge since like the mid '90s, so surely he'd have like a zillion picks. He only has twelve. Because what Tom has done very cleverly is only limited to the point where Pop was leading the basketball operation. Once RC takes over, RC takes the bulk of the rest of that. Mm. So if we're limiting what Pop has picked, well, also Pop by virtue of being so good at coaching and executive, whatever. Yeah. All their picks are the expected value of like nothing. Tony Parker, Ginobili, all these picks are gold because the expectation is you get like maybe a bench guy. They only have had two times where they're, oh, let's get Victor Wembanyama. Oh, let's get Tim Duncan. Tom, the Tim Duncan one, if we're limiting the amount of time his picks are happening and we're saying, oh, but Tim Duncan happened during that. Yeah. Of course this shit's going to be the best ever. It's not just him. Come on. You're saying that it's overvaluing that pick? Yes. Okay. Louis Scola in the second round. Tom, if you and I both play in an NBA season and I take five three-pointers and I make three of them, but you take 500 and you make 200 of them, who's the better three-point shooter? Well, I can't tell because you've only taken six three-pointers or whatever, right? Exactly. That's my point. I only took five shots. I'm shooting 60%, but I think we can all accept that my 60% is not as significant as your 40% because your 40% happened over 500 attempts. You did this a lot and often, and I quit while I was ahead, which is what we're telling Isaiah Thomas ironically to do. Don't mess up that track record. That's what Pop did. 12 picks, I'm out. Wah, Arriva Dirty. <laughs> Come on, man. My point is this is a long walk to say, all right, if you throw out Greg Popovich, you end up with Isaiah Thomas as the best drafter in the whole database. Isaiah Thomas taking away his draft picks. That's his superpower. That's like enter Marvel Comics superhero. Take the hammer away from Thorne. Thorne? Thorne. Rick Thorne. <laughs> so what you're telling me, Tom, is that Isaiah Thomas is shadow GMing <laughs> away from his strengths to doing what he doesn't do well, which is paying established veterans a bunch of money. Matt Ishbia came in, cleared out the cupboard. He's loaded up on a very, very, very expensive team Yeah, with three players essentially getting him to the luxury tax starting not next season, but the year after. They're going to trade DeAndre Ayton for whatever they can to fill out the rest of the team, and then it's minimum players going forward into a new CBA with a restrictive second apron. And then when that doesn't work out, Mark Bartlestein rears his ugly head and says, hey, we're going to force a trade our, our way out of here. And then it, it happens all over again. I think it was Zach Lowe who's reporting that teams were trying to get Bradley Beal and asking him, hey, would you be willing to waive your no trade clause once you arrive here? Mm -mm -mm. Nope, not going to happen. And should this matter? We've talked about all these other front office guys, James Jones, Josh Bartlestein, his dad, Isaiah Thomas. Is it Kevin Durant is the shadow GM? Because now we were operating on, he left the Golden State Warriors because for whatever reason, he wanted to start up his own team. And then when that didn't work out, 
forced to trade over to the Phoenix Suns, and now he's getting rid of Chris Paul, bringing in Bradley Beal. If this doesn't work out, how do we how do we appraise Kevin Durant's ability to formulate another super team? He sucks. <laughs> Brandon Payne next. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com You all think I'm late. Well, I'm not late. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause. Even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. There's no better way to overpower a trickle of doubt than with a flood of naked truth. But the complexity and the gray lie not in the truth. But what you do with the truth once you have it. What is true and right is true and right for all. You and I both know that that's just not the truth. You can't handle the truth! It's too messy. Keeps them up nice. I'm here because in the end, the truth is worth the risk. Speak a little truth and people lose their minds. I'm a grown man. You can tell me the truth. Why is it people who want the truth never believe it when they hear it? So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something really outrageous. I'm going to tell the truth. All right. We got Brandon Payne here from Accelerate Basketball. Brandon, first question. Are you going to walk the red carpet on draft night since you've had a hand in Scoot? Henderson's draft prep. Have you picked out your outfit? I would love to be there, but unfortunately, my my oldest son has his first games in the Under Armour Nationals that night. So I will be oh, wow. playing the part of coach slash dad that night. You know, you only get to be a father one time. And so I'm certainly proud of Scoot. And I'm certainly proud of the fact that I had the opportunity to be a part of it. But I've missed a lot of things over the years with my son. So I don't want to miss this one, too. So unfortunately, I won't be there. But I'll be there in spirit. I'll be watching on TV. I'll be texting him. But I, unfortunately, when I be there in person. I know we're supposed to be talking about Scoot and Steph and all those things. But, I, Brandon, how hard is it to coach your own kid? With my youngest son, it's extremely difficult. With my oldest son, it's not that difficult at all. He's a little bit more of the the learner, the guy that he, he really enjoys the learning aspect of, of what we're doing. And he's a guy that depends on execution to have success. You know, he's he's not really a, a big space creator himself. You know, he's he fits a role and he plays that role well. So it, it's actually, it's not that bad. I enjoy it. You know, it, it's um, when they were younger, I tried to let, let them play for other folks. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I've got a lot of experiences that a lot of other folks don't. And uh, so I just decided after a few years, it was probably best if I just did it myself and, and, and surrounded <laughs> surrounded with the right people and made sure that the message was what I wanted to be. Because ultimately, he wants to be a coach, too. He wants to be in basketball. So 
for me, it's not so much just about him playing now. It's really about making sure he has a solid foundation and base of knowledge to operate from when he gets to college and beyond. I know you're working with Scoot and he was part of the G League Ignite team and you got kids coming up through the ranks of AAU or youth basketball, Under Armour Nationals. With so many different ways to get into the NBA, when we were growing up, it was just college and then NBA. How has that complicated the whole process of just preparing for the next level when there's different levels to the next level? I don't think it's complicated. I think it's just giving them more options and gives each individual a chance to to select a path that works the best for them. You know, when you look at the Ignite, you look at Overtime Elite, you look at college basketball, they all have different things that give them benefit over one or the other. But I think what it it comes down to is the individual. I think for Scoop, for a young guy, is actually pretty mature. The Ignite was a good option for him because he could handle himself. He's a worker. He's a guy that would fill his extra time that he would have really trying to do things to get better. Whereas some other guys that aren't maybe not quite as driven would leave that free time that they have with the Ignite and, and they kind of leave it empty or they play video games. Or if you're in Las Vegas, you can get into a lot of trouble. But it's not for everybody. And I think that examining the personality of each player, understanding the family situation of each player, understanding the goals of that year, because it can't just be about getting to the NBA. It's got to be, what am I getting out of this year? Do I need more structural understanding of, of how to be a basketball player in terms of the X's and O's of it? Do I need to you know, understand how to put my days together in terms of having my daily process of getting better? Each one of those routes gives you different things and different benefits. And I think that I like it because it, it gives the player the power to choose what's best for them. As long as you have the right team around you and you, as long as you have the right information with all three or four paths, you make what's the decision that's best for you and you go with it. Scoot's a little bit of a, a special case, though, because he didn't just leave high school and go to the G League Ignite. He left after his junior year. He's a two-year participant in the Ignite program. Mm -hmm. What makes Scoot different in that regard of being able to do two years of this, not just one? And also, how much more do you think it's prepared him for the league, having spent two years in the program versus one? So, number one, he's physically as gifted as as they come. Like, holy, he is... 18 years old. (laughs) Watching some of these these clips, man, he looks like a 6'2 body, but, like, they put Ben Wallace's arms, like, Lego snapped into his body. Like, it's crazy how big his arms are, how long they are. That's actually a really good description. John Wall's engine, it's crazy. I saw somebody posted something on Instagram that said, Scoot Henderson looks like a cyborg that just eats, you know, nuts and and fruits and, and drinks water. That's it. He is really good about his diet. He's not quite that strict, but I mean, he just, you know, he physically could handle it, you know, and, and that goes a long way towards it, but he's also very much so an alpha and, and he has the ability even amongst older players to kind of command a little bit and create the feeling that he's in control and guys will, will follow it. When you're out there with him, it really hits you every workout, how explosive he is. There were points in, in each and every workout over those eight weeks where I would just get caught up watching him because you're just like, man, this is incredible. And I told one NBA coach and one executive, you know, when it comes to him wanting to get to the basket right now, he's going to get there. Hmm. If you want to stop him, you're probably going to go for a ride, but he's going to get there. And he's got a lot of ways that he can get there. He's very creative with his footwork. He's very creative with how he handles the ball in really tight situations. So I think that that, that allowed him to be prepared to compete 
day in and day out with grown men because that's what it is when you get to the G League. It is grown men. Right. That's what I liked about it for him. I like that he was playing in NBA actions. I like that he's playing on an NBA floor. I like that he was playing against grown men. And I think that the statistics are a little bit more comparable and a little bit easier to evaluate because of that. That's kind of the knock. When you talk about the different pathways that players can take, you know, the knocks that I've heard on like maybe over time or maybe even some of the college basketball stuff is it's really hard to get a really good evaluation from a number standpoint because they're different games and against players that are like ages and, you know, or even in overtime elites case, you've got some really younger high school players playing against guys that are getting ready for the draft. And that's a tough evaluation. But in the G League, that's not the case. We have very comparable statistics, very comparable in terms of actions that you're running and, and you're playing against players that are older than you. So for him, I think it really worked well for him and it, it prepared him the right way. So Brandon, you've been the longtime trainer of the greatest shooter ever. Yeah. And then you get a chance to work out Scoot Henderson, who's coming in as a physical specimen, has jets, has extremely long arms and super strong, great feel for the game, can just get into the paint. But one of the things that he has room for improvement on is his jump shot, or I guess his ability to shoot from range efficiently. So you've gotten a chance to have Steph and Scoot in the same room and shooting in the same workout. What are the do's and don'ts about getting a physical specimen and someone as talented as Scoot Henderson and then like bringing him in with this like Rolls Royce of shooters? <laughs> well, the big don't that I learned in workout one last week is don't have them alternate shooting when we're playing shooting games where if you keep making it, you keep going. Because what happened <laughs> is Mr. Curry hadn't touched a basketball in about four weeks and he decided to rattle off about 60 in a row in one drill and Scoot's eyes got about this big. And I was like, yeah, nice. I had to get telling like, hey, don't worry, this isn't normal. Normal. Don't, it's not normal. Don't don't worry about it. So, and then you know, Scoop gets up and he takes a couple shots. He made five or six in a row and he missed. And I looked at him and said, if I had to wait twenty minutes in between shots, I'd probably miss too. So don't worry about it. And so that was the big one. But I mean, I think that you have to help young players understand how to value their work in shooting workouts. You have to tell. You have to teach them how to operate with purpose, pace, and precision, because they don't get a lot of that in, in the things that they do when they're younger. That was big for him to see that we are watching the flight of the basketball. We are examining his body. We're talking to him more about his footwork and his core, not necessarily shooting mechanics, teaching them how to shoot and make shots with your body. And that's, that's Scoot's challenge right now, because he certainly has the ability to make shots and he's, he's shown that mm -hmm. right now he's a results-based guy as most young guys are meaning that their shooting workouts and how they judge whether their shooting workouts are valuable or not that day is whether or not the ball is going in and that's not always going to be the case in workouts what i'm trying to help him understand is you need to to use the information that the misses are giving us to create a better process for yourself. You've got to track the flight of the basketball and you've got to start to recognize, all right, the ball went left because I allowed a, a rotation. I've got to tighten up through my core to stay a little bit more square. That's where the miss happened by tracking the ball is telling me where the miss happens. But if I'm getting pissed off about every miss and I'm kicking the ball, throwing it around, cussing because I'm missing – I'm missing the information that the misses are giving me and I'm not allowing my process to be perfected because I'm more worried about the results of a workout where nobody's in there watching. So it's teaching young guys to be a little bit more process oriented, 
to take the information and make the adjustments to their body and not necessarily worry about the makes and misses. And that's been the challenge with Scoot. There's been some little things physically. You know, he's so big, he's so strong, and he he has one thing that he does a lot that that a lot of really big, strong players do, which means they don't get fully extended through their legs when they're trying to control the basketball, when they're trying to control it long and short. And it ends up with them shooting with a lot of arms. So teaching him that I would rather him fade on those mid-range shots but get the triple extension with his legs and just hold the follow through for one count long. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. What's a triple extension <laughs> with the legs? You're throwing a lot of terminology at me. Tom, you know what an extension is? Just triple it. That's what a triple extension is. Thank you. Thank you, me. What triple extension means is you get extended at your ankles, knees, and hips. So a lot of really strong guys will leave their knees slightly bent when they try to go straight up and down and shoot a mid-range shot. And what that does is it basically kills all the power that they're getting from the ground to their body, and they can't get it through their hands. So they end up shooting all arms, so, that, so they miss a lot of long and short. So just teaching him to use the entire leg, the entire body, but just fade a little bit, and that's how he control the long and short. So little stuff like that's what he's been focused on, and it's making a big difference for him. What sort of miss do you want to see from Scoot? Like if he's going to miss a shot, what's a healthy miss? Never short. Never short. So it's long and straight. Hmm. We have a lot of really not nice things we call players that miss short. And it's a lot of questioning certain things about <laughs> you that you don't want questioned about you as a man. <laughs> so we don't want you to miss short. We certainly don't want you to miss right or left. We'll take a long miss as long as it's down the middle. But short is going to lead me to insulting you a lot. And you don't want that. You talked about the information coming off of the miss telling you about your body. Right. The things that not necessarily in your shot mechanics, but stuff that's wrong with your body. When you watched Scoot shoot, what were some of the things when he came to you before you guys had worked together? What are some of the things that you guys felt needed to be corrected about his body mechanics? Yeah, really, it started with what I was just talking about, getting fully extended on every shot. And so we spent probably the first two weeks really focusing on that, really doing a lot of physical and verbal cues to remind him, hey, get extended, a lot of showing him film, you know, recording it, showing it to him. Um, and then once he got really comfortable with that, then we just move up the chain. Then we talk, start talking a little bit more about your core and how your core can control any rotation or anti-rotation that you have within your shot. So that allows you to control the right and left a little bit longer. So we, ad we address the long and the short by talking about his knees and his ankles and his hips. And then we started to address the left to right by teaching him how to activate and operate that core in the shooting process. Um, now that's in catch and shoot situations. Now, obviously, as you get more dynamic and you're moving laterally, you're getting downhill, other little things will start to pop up that you'll start to address. But with shooters, and especially NBA, you can't go in with a hundred things at one time and say, we got to do this. We gotta do it. It's, it's really just picking one thing, stay with it for a certain amount of time until they're starting to correct it themselves. So that's, as we were going through the process, I could tell when he was getting it, when he would just give me a look like, shut the hell up. I got it. You know, <laughs> I'll fix it. You don't have to remember. So once I started getting the shut the hell up looks, I'd say, okay, now I'm going to move on to the next thing. So now we'll move because he, he's fully understanding what's going on. And now we can move to the next little, little refining in it. And I don't ever like to talk to guys about changing their mechanics. I don't, I don't like that word changing. You're not, we're not changing your mechanics. We're just refining how you move a little bit. And if you move better, your mechanics will get better without us even having to do anything mechanically. If we, you know, a lot of guys like to talk about your hands here, your elbow here, your, shoulder, your hands, your elbow, your shoulders, all that's a sum of the parts. 
if everything below your waist is correct, everything above your waist will get better. And so if you, but if you're starting here, it's like starting at the end of the, the equation and trying to work backwards. You want to start at the ground and you work your way up. It is going to sound like a dumb question, but obviously you work with the greatest shooter of all time. Are there any lessons that you've learned from working with Steph that you can then actually apply to someone like Scoot or Davion Mitchell, another guy that you work with who isn't known as a shooter? It's really more of an approach and it's a, it's a process that, that we go through. And, and when you work with shooters, the first thing you have to realize is that every shooter and how they shoot is as individuals, their fingerprint. If you try to make one shooter shoot it the way another guy shoots it, you're going to run into a lot of problems. And, you know, we all have these old, you know, thoughts of what your elbows should be here, your hands should be here. And all that is great. And, and some of that, they are correct but they're not absolutes. Reggie Miller. We just saw Jokic. Reggie Miller, Jokic, Steph, they all shoot so much differently, and yet they're all elite. And you can even go back and watch Larry Bird. Larry Bird did a lot of things that we would never teach, you know, in terms of the <laughs> balls behind his head, his left thumb is coming through. Like, you know, if, if we were teaching somebody how to shoot, we wouldn't start with, with how Larry does. And Stefan is the same thing. There, there's a lot of things that Stefan does that Stefan can get away with because he has such great body control. A lot of people like to point out, well, Steph doesn't have 10 toes to the rim. And I said, well, that's okay because Stefan has tremendous core, core strength, specifically vertical core strength. And he also has an incredible ability to, to correct his footwork through thoracic rotation, which is any rotation that's above his core, he can correct. So if his feet happen to be off to the left a little bit, he can always get his chest and his core back to the rim, even if he corrects it when he's in the air. And nobody else can really do that. And so, you know, I wouldn't teach that to anybody. But so Steph has the compensating movement patterns to correct the footwork problems up the chain that a lot of other guys don't. And that's where I mean, that's one of the reasons I've really adopted this philosophy of we're just going to teach you how to use your body better. We're going to teach you how to use the gifts and the tools that you have within yourself first. And once we do that, then we can start to go back and make little mechanical refinements if we need to. But what a lot of guys find is when they finally figure out how to use their core when they're shooting, when they figure out how to keep their weight between their arches properly and not let their weight get out to the outside of their foot, you know, once they get the, that center of mass in the right spot, once they get that core activated, they'll start to shoot the ball more consistently. That's the most important thing. They've got to shoot it more consistently first before they shoot it better. And when they do that, you know, confidence grows and comfort grows. And, and when you're comfortable and you're confident, you're going to make more shots. Was there anything metric wise that you can point to that said, hey, Scoot's shooting a whole lot better now than when we first got together? So with young guys, again, I'm very, very careful about what we're tracking and what information we're giving them. So we, we don't want to overload them with information. Now, with Stefan, we, we can use all these different metrics and I can go here, you know, the balls, we're off here. Gotcha. But with young guys, you want to be very because their, their confidence is fragile and, and their ego can be a little bit sensitive. And, you know, they, you know if, you, if you get overly critical specifically, because with Stefan, I'm critical about makes. If the make <laughs> is off a little bit, I'm pointing it out to them. You know, but with young guys, you want to stay very general. Even the, the shooting competitions and the shooting games that I do with them, they are versions of what we would do with veterans. They are versions of what we would do with guys that shoot it well. But it's not at that level that just going to kick your ass over and over again. So, we, you know, you have to be very strategic about the information. You have to be very strategic about the drills you do so that you're maintaining their confidence level while you're doing this work. You got a chance to work with Davion Mitchell. Yeah. What was that like this summer after watching him go at it with Steph in the playoffs? His agent called me about him. And I, the first thing I said is, 
number one, he's a pain in my ass. Number two, <laughs> I love the kid because I love how hard he plays. He's just one of those guys that he's just a dog. He defends and he plays with such a such a passion and so hard. I was like, I, I got to get on the court with this guy once or twice. And then, then, then you meet the kid and he's a great kid. And, and, and he, and he was asking all the right questions right off the bat in terms of, you know, the things that he needed to do to become a better shooter, you know, cause he, obviously he wants to stay on the court more and he wants to be a, a guy that's relied upon. And he, he really enjoys playing with that, that team. And so it was a lot of fun to work with him. And he was another one that, as soon as you gave him the information, he was able to start to implement the self-assessment. So, you know, he would start to, to feel it. And that's a really delicate balance because you don't want them thinking through every shot they're taking. You don't want them to think about it. You just want them to be able to assess after they release it what went wrong. So there were a few times he could be a little bit over analytical of himself. There were a few times where I had to say, okay, now stop thinking and just shoot, just, just let it go. Just let it fly. And he would immediately get a little bit more comfortable. But, you know, by the end of that first week we had together, he was shooting it very well, very consistently. And he's done a great job. You know, my schedule is very difficult for a lot of players. So, you know, he's sending me video each day. Hey, you know, this is what I did today. And am I doing this correct? Am I doing And so he's, he's been very engaged from a learning standpoint and, he understands he's got some things he's got to do better to, to shoot it more consistently. And, and he's doing those things. So he's been a lot of fun. I don't know if you know this, Amin or Maze, but we are graced by someone who was in the New York Times this morning. Oh, Brandon Payne, you were in the New York Times this morning. And Jonathan really? Abrams, my buddy, Jonathan Abrams, oh, just wrote a big, yeah. long piece about Scoot Henderson in the New York Times. A teen basketball star took his time growing up for the NBA. And you're in the lead wow. of the story talking about how exhausted Scoot was in one of these workouts. And I'm wondering like Davion Scoot and Steph in like an endurance or a competition and in involving like running the floor, just I feel like I already know this answer, putting them through the a conditioning drill. <laughs> Who's winning that one? I mean, young fellas are doing a great job, man. But I mean, the, <laughs> that, that number 30, man, he's, uh, he's pretty special. It's, uh, you know, they, they would all put up a really good fight, but I mean, you know, you can ask Dave on what game seven was, what felt like out there. It was pretty tough. Old number 30, he's going to win that one. There was one drill that, that Abrams was writing about full court shooting drill or something like that with, with Scoot. And then he had to, he had to do this like core workout where he had one of his legs up on the, Oh yeah. Walk me through that one. I do this with every pre-draft kid because some teams, when they bring them in, they do put them through an incredibly difficult. I, I heard, uh, and I mean, you could probably speak to this. I heard about some of the stuff that D'Antoni used to do with guys mm -hmm. in Phoenix when they were, when they were in their heyday, I heard about some three on three that had a 13 or 12 or 13 second shot clock. They were playing full court. And yep. Wait, what's that? We bumped the shot clock down to 14. And he played three on three full court. Oh. The idea was we didn't want people walking up. That's, I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of it was just to see who would quit. Exactly. So exactly that. So at every point in a pre-draft, there's always one day where I feel like, okay, he feels pretty good today. He's been really good this week. I think today is the day I'm going to try to break him. <laughs> try to crush his soul. I'm Logan Roy today. Yes, I'm just going to crush him. Today is the day that I'm going to see if he will quit. And there's no other purpose to the workout other than <laughs> will you quit? And so I, I had this, you know, it's a workout, a version of a workout that I actually do with Steph and we call it uh, game simulation. But what, what we do is we do it in, in four possession stints and then we give him a break. You know, it's four possessions up and down. He's guarding for 94 feet. He's got three actions to guard. 
then he's got to get the rebound. He's got to get down the floor. He's got three actions to execute and make shots on the other end. It's very difficult to do that four straight possessions. I had Steph, uh, excuse me, I had Scoot doing it for eight possessions. Then I had him doing it for seven possessions. Then I had him doing it for, and in between, he had to make five shots, five shots, five shots. Five, you, know, he's making, you know, he had to make a bunch of shots in between. And I was just sitting there waiting in my mind. I'm like, he's going to quit. He's going to quit at some point because this is crazy. This is insane. There's no way that he can take this type of pain. And he got all the way through it and didn't quit. And I thought he was going to throw up. He was asking for a trash can, and then he didn't throw up. And then he kept shooting. And I was like, okay, all right. And then I looked at all the, the, the his his siblings that were helping us and the, the other trainer that was helping me and his dad. I was like, okay, we can send him anywhere now. He's going to be just fine. <laughs> there, there's not a team in the league that will do more than that. So he's he's ready to go anywhere. And so – that was what they were referring to was was that enormous game simulation that I put them through that that had no other purpose than just can you get through this? Man, I want to ask you. Much of the year it felt like that Wembenyama was one and and Scoot Henderson has been two, and then over the last however many months, you see a lot more Brandon Miller two and Scoot three. And I know people now people are looking at it. Well, the Charlotte Hornets have the number two pick and Lamelo Ball is there, so it's more of a positional thing. But those kind of mock drafts and stuff were leaning that way before the lottery. Yeah. So in your mind, what is a legitimate reason to say, well, Scoot is probably the third best prospect. And then I want you to argue against that legitimate reason and tell me why he is not the third best prospect. I don't see him as third best prospect, but I'm going to play along here. I think that when you look at, the rosters and the needs of the rosters. I think that the Hornets could use a little more length and, and the ability to score dynamically on the wing. So I think that, that there's your argument for Miller right there. I think that he potentially may be a really good roster fit, but I'm going to take the best available player guy. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the fact that Scoot has already played in an NBA setting and he's already played in those types of actions, to me, is a little bit more of a, a known element than trying to go back and say, okay, he did this in college, so he's going to do this in the NBA. I think that that's a, a difficult thing to say. you know. And, and quite frankly, I'll be honest with you, I have not studied Brandon Miller enough. I, the, the, the couple of games that I happened to watch him, I saw him play North Carolina. They beat North Carolina, but he was not particularly good in that game. And then the other games that I saw him, I believe he was injured. I saw him in the first games of the NCAA tournament. I think he had a hip injury or groin injury. So those are really difficult games for me to form a a really solid opinion of him. I I did see a lot of the the South Carolina game. I know he was really good there. I think he scored 40. Um, You know, and certainly his size and the skill set that he possesses is going to be attractive to a lot of teams. There's a reason everybody's talking about him being number two or number three. For me, I love players like Dave Young. I love players that play hard. Mm. And I know that Scoot Henderson is going to play hard. He's going to be very good. And I know that he has the potential to be the face of a franchise. He's got the personality to be a face of a franchise. He's got the work ethic to be a face of a franchise. He's the kind of guy you want in your building all the time. So, Brandon, we I've been looking at like some of the top prospects in the draft and just studying their profile, watching their film. And one thing that stuck out to me is not a lot of great three point shooting percentages at the top of the draft. Even Victor Wembenyama, who is always on my timeline with an amazing step back through the legs, uh, three pointer. And it looks just like easy for him. He doesn't have a great shooting percentage this year. 
And then I think for a lot of the prospects, that's the Thompson twins. Um, I think a lot of it is their weakness is shooting or from range. And I'm like, how, how is it possible in today's NBA where the three point shot is emphasized so much. And yet in 2023, a lot of the top prospects just haven't shown the ability to shoot from range at a high percentage yet. What do you have any explanation for, for that? Or it's just randomness and, and throw all that out because Victor Wembanyama, Scoot Henderson, all these guys, I wouldn't worry about their percentages at this point. Well, I think that, you know, I think that it is a little bit of an anomaly that you have this many guys in the top five or six that, that might not be great shooters, but I've, yeah, I've worked with the Thompson twins some too. And they, they came to our, our Stephen Curry select camp last summer. They were, they were outstanding. I do think that the top of this draft is as athletic as we've ever seen. I mean, you know, the, the twins are incredible athletes. I mean, they do something. It's kind of like scoot. They do something in every workout where you just like, Oh my God, you know, how, how, do, how does that happen? Um, and, and they're really smart and intelligent kids too, that, that are doing the work they need to do to improve their shot. Um, you know, I just think that you have a, a, an athlete heavy draft, um, and it might take a little bit longer for these guys to really affect winning in the NBA just because winning in the NBA means you're making shots. And so, you know, for them, it's, it's going to be getting in and, and kind of refining and getting better at shooting the basketball. But I, but everybody, you know, Scoot included, can all these guys can defend in the NBA right now. And I think they can defend multiple positions. And I think that's one thing I don't think Scoot's got enough credit for is everybody points to his height as potentially being a limiting factor in terms of him being able to switch a lot of things on the perimeter. But when you look at how strong he is and how much leverage that he can create with his base, and then he has this six nine six ten wingspan, it makes him a little bit more of a versatile defender than he's getting credit for. I do think that he can be, he can do a lot of switching on the perimeter. I think one through three, he can switch fairly easily. Four is going to be a challenge. Five is probably a little bit out of the question right now, but one through three, he can switch it and defend. Uh, and certain lineups with certain teams, he could probably go one through four, but one through three, he's good. Brandon, can anyone become a good shooter? Any prospect, I should say. They can, but it takes time. And there, there is no kind of magic, you know, magic bullet you can give them to, to do this or do that. It, it, it really is about learning to be a process-oriented shooter, a process-oriented worker, and, and learning that the path to becoming an improved shooter is not a linear path. It's going to do this a lot there's going to be a lot of this. And are you mentally tough enough to deal with the swings and success that come with becoming a better shooter? Um, But it, it it does, it comes with the right structure. Um, You've got to be systematic, organized and progressive with how you approach it. Um, You have to include tracking when the time is right. Um, And there's got to be one voice. There's got to be one voice where a lot of, teams and players in my opinion go wrong is there's too many voices in the process well you got to do you got one coach you got to do this you got another coach got you got a trainer that got it it, there needs to be one voice and you know because when you have if you ask 10 different coaches how they teach shooting you're gonna get 10 different answers just like if you ask 10 different cpas how you know about taxes, you're gonna get 10 different answers about taxes you know so it's it's one of those things where once a player finds a comfort level with that one voice, that needs to be the only voice and all other voices need to be funneled through that voice. Um, you know, I've had a lot of people come to me about this whole concept of, 
this hybrid front office slash coaching position called director of shooting, kind of like major league baseball teams have director of pitching where, where all the coaches kind of report to that one voice and that one voice kind of sends the information back and, and that the, that the player needs to, to hear and the player needs to execute. I think that, that that's what's needed for these young players. They need one voice, a consistent program that they go through using that one voice to get better. But when you're jumping from this person to that person, you're getting this opinion and that opinion, it becomes a mess because there is an approach that, that comes with being a better shooter and, and it can't go from being, you know, catch and shoot guy to immediately Stephen Curry or James Harden, you know, shooting all these different dynamic step backs and things like that. That takes time and it takes learning how to use your body. Last question. We'll let you go here. Steph Curry is 35 years old. He's entering a season in which who knows what happens with Draymond. Is Chris Paul coming in? What's happened with Jordan Poole? A lot of uncertainty with Bob Myers leaving Mike Dunleavy Jr. Taking over the reins there. He's 35. How many years can he play at this level in your mind now that you've had an off season or you're getting ready for, you know, the pre training camp workouts with Steph, anything change with his trajectory that make you feel like either he's, he's going to play into his forties physically. Where is he at right now? Even though his age says 35. Well, since you said 35, three times, that's just making me realize how old I am because he's, <laughs> he's a lot younger than me. So that that's really all that's going through my head right now is if he's 35, damn, how old am I? But no, I, he's not slowing down. I mean, I, I've said this for a long time. You know, he was a guy that was a later developing guy physically. So, you know, his timeline is, is a lot longer than, than most. I think when it comes to Stefan determining how long he plays, it's not going to really be performance on the basketball court. I don't foresee that changing anytime soon. I think it really comes down to what's important to him day to day in life. You know, what's important to him as a father, what's important to him as a husband. I think those things are going to determine how long he plays much more so than roster or, you know, how he's playing on the floor. He's, he's not going anywhere anytime soon in terms of his productivity. It's really, it comes down to are you still enjoying playing? Are you competitive? Are you still competitive? Is the team still competitive? And does this fit what you want every day in your life? I think those are the decisions that they're, they're going to go a little bit more into when he decides to walk away versus continuing to play. And not a lot of players can say that. I know. I was just going to say, how cool is that? That like, when am I going to hang it up? Ah, when I'm like emotionally or mentally don't have what it takes anymore. I'm just, I'm just going to let it go. Yeah. 35, like Chris Paul is 38, right? It's crazy that they have the ability to say, yeah, when my heart's not in it, I'm, I'm good. I think his heart will always be in it. I think that, you know, again, I kind of said it at the start, you, you only get to be a father one time and what's important to you day in and day out, I think is going to play in pretty heavily into that decision that if it was basketball only, we, we'd be going for a while. I don't think that that's going to change anytime soon. That's Brandon Payne from Accelerate Basketball, working with Scoot Henderson, not going to the draft, but being a good father and hanging out with his kid at the Under Armour Nationals. Maybe you just were taking notes for when your kids are going to be in the draft in a few years. Maybe that that's what it is. Possibly. We'd, we'd love for that to be the case. Brandon, thanks so much, man. Appreciate you. Thank you.
Big day Friday after last week's episode. Mm. John Morant news dropped, but also this other piece of news dropped on Friday. I mean, is it news? Is it news if we've kind of known for a while? We even talked about it on this very podcast. We brought it up last week. We said, didn't this already happen? Isn't this weird? Isn't it odd that we're calling this news? I, I think what was news. To find out that my friend, J. Cole, is going to be part of the ownership group and as a minority owner. Not just as an owner who's a minority, but as a minority stake owner. And that was news to me. I didn't know, and none of my friends knew. The only people who knew were, were Cole and, and my cousin Eve. So shout out to them. Thanks for sharing. Did the doctor say you could drop things that, that heavy and pick them up? Your back is thrown out? I'm not picking them up. I just drop them. Yeah, he just drops them. Oh, okay. Somebody else pick them up. Leaves them for us to, to deal with. This is really weird. I get where you're going here, Tom. This situation is very weird because we've known about this sale to the principals, to the majority stakeholders, for coming up on months now. But it still hasn't been ratified, which I know what you're thinking. Well, these things take time because they have to vet the people who are purchasing the team. But Tom, what's the difference in this situation versus a regular sale to some weird billionaire? This is what's striking me as odd because the new ownership group that is taking over and buying the majority stake from Michael Jordan are two names, Gabe Plotkin and Rick Schnall. Mm -hmm. Now, unless you're big in the hedge fund world or read the Financial Times or subscribe to Barron's, Probably don't know who these names are, but they're not just any hedge fund guys or what have you, private equity. They're not just any money men. They're already minority owners in the NBA. And so they've already been vetted by the NBA to have a big chunk of equity in an NBA team. Rick Schnall is coming from the Atlanta Hawks and Gabe Plotkin has already owned a piece, a substantial piece of the Charlotte Hornets. So both of these entities have already been vetted enough to be part of the NBA business. So what is the hangup here? What possibly could be taking this long? Tom, you're asking too many questions. Huh? There's not enough space in this podcast right now to open our third eyes fully. I say we table this for another day where we can devote maybe an entire episode, agenda cold open and cold close. That's crazy. To the curious case of the Charlotte Hornets. Whoa. We should probably run that by maze here. A cold open and a cold close? <laughs> In this economy? Exactly. And the name of the episode, working title, In This Economy. <laughs>